Hello and welcome to the Bloomberg Tech Disruptors podcast. In this podcast series, we talk with CEOs and management teams about their views on disruption and how it's driving their decision making and strategy. My name is Mandeep and with me today is Brian Venturo, co-founder and CTO of Corvi. Brian, welcome to the podcast. Thank you very much for having me. Very excited to be here. Great. Uh, and uh, look, uh, I think you've got a very unique background and uh, would love to start off there. You know how you uh, went about starting Corvive and is it something that you always focused on with regards to, you know, the GPU infrastructure that you guys offer or just anything that you can share in terms of background would be great. Yeah, so it, it's been a pretty circuitous path to get here uh, for me in my career. And, you know, right out of college, I started out um, in what I would consider to be a pretty esoteric market, which was environmental finance. And I worked for a firm called Natsource, and I was hired uh, in my junior year as an intern by Mike Intrader, who's Corwee's CEO now. Um, and I was working on structured project finance uh, with the Natsource team building emission reduction projects around the world. Um, it was a very unique and interesting uh, kind of uh, start to my career in that, you know, I, we did a lot of structured transactions. Uh, we did a lot of physical industrial deployments. Um, we did a lot of international business. And I was kind of dropped into the deep end of the pool right out of the gates. Um, you know, after that, uh, you know, after what would, I guess I consider a brief stint in that project management or project analytic role, um, I started helping them run their U.S. energy trading desk, um, which brought me to the U.S. natural gas market. And the U.S. natural gas market is very interesting in that there's a ton of data transparency where pipeline operators that move gas on an interstate basis have to post uh, what gas is flowing, who it's flowing to, who it's flowing from, and what they're using it for. And I was fascinated by this because it allowed us to build this, uh, you know, I, at the time we called predictive analytics, which I guess now is considered machine learning models on, you know, what the U.S. gas economy looked like, um, you know, how it aggregated up from a supply demand perspective and what that ultimate, ultimately would mean uh, for price. Um, so, you know, I had had this background in uh, industrial project development and project management and structured finance, and also in this, you know, this technology focused systematic trading strategy, um, where, you know, when we kind of got dragged into this crypto craze, uh, back in 2016, because, you know, it was starting to be all the rage and prices going up. And, you know, we looked at it and said, Oh, this is pretty cool. How can we do this? Um, those backgrounds kind of became the perfect confluence of expertise to step into uh, a cryptocurrency mining position. And what started out as a hobby, you know, was something that was very exciting because we would plug a GPU in on Monday and by Friday, it would have paid itself off. And as, you know, having history in commodity trading, if something pays, if you make a hundred percent return in five days, like you want to do more of that. Um, so, you know, M Mike and I, uh, actually reached out to Brandon McBee, who is CoreWeave CSO and third founder. Um, and we went into this business to do cryptocurrency mining. And, 
you know, we were developing it together. And when folks found out what we were doing, they called us up and said, hey, could you do some for me? Um, and, you know, that was the beginning of our of what I consider to be our scale exercise, right, where, you know, now we were taking these commodity producing assets um, and building them as fast as possible. And what eventually happened was we were running just over 60,000 GPUs um, that, you know, we had to deal with the management and identification of problems and, you know, the, the continuous operation from a super, super automated perspective that became the basis for our expertise in building and managing what is now cloud infrastructure at scale, right? So, yeah. you know, the, the early days were, uh, you know, structured project finance, esoteric markets, um, you know, machine learning and predict predictive analytics around the U.S. natural gas market um, that set the stage for what core we was eventually going to become. Right. Okay. Yeah, no, I, I, I think uh, uh, it, it kind of sets up uh, a very good uh, background in terms of uh, how you've uh, evolved uh, uh, personally and, you know, uh, where the company is today. But would love to, you know, hear from you, given you've worked uh, on the finance side, like, I mean, how are this uh, wave of, I, I guess, the GPUs, how is that really uh, intersect? Like, what drove that uh, idea in terms of leveraging uh, these chips from, let's say, crypto to uh, offering an infrastructure service where clients can come in and consume this uh, GPU capacity? Yeah, so... You know, early on when we were buying GPUs for mining, we made the decision that, you know, we weren't going to buy specialized devices like ASICs uh, for Bitcoin because we didn't believe that we had any edge or any ability to, to repurpose them if crypto went to zero. And in, 2000, in late 2018 and early 2019, we were put in a position that we were faced with a pretty binary bet, right? This is, I guess it was called crypto winter at the time. And... You know, we were losing money as we operated our business and we were in a position saying, OK, crypto is either going to go to zero or it's not. And what do we do if it doesn't if it doesn't go to zero? Right. And we decided that we were going to raise a seed round and buy as much distressed GPU infrastructure as we could. Right. And after we did that and we had that infrastructure up and running, we went and we turned around and looked at ourselves. And said, OK, we've now made the bet. Right. And. We're, we're, we're happy with the position that we're in, like, what the heck do we do with these GPUs if we're wrong? Right, and this is really where the exploration of other use cases came in. And the, you know, we, I was lucky enough to uh, have been connected with Peter Solanke, who is Corby's VP of engineering now uh, in 2018. And we shared a lot of this, a lot of similar ideas and theories about how do you pivot a, G, a GPU mining farm to run other workloads um, and, you know, to this day, uh, that was probably one of the, well, it was definitely one of the, the forks in the road that defined Core Weave's success is meeting Peter, right? I think he's one of the most brilliant technologists I've ever come across, and he's principally responsible for architecting our cloud platforms at this point. Brian, I, I think the way you described uh, the evolution, it's it's almost unique. I, I think most of the companies that we have spoken to, uh, clearly your background is unique in that sense. I'm very curious uh, to hear, you know, uh, what is it that you had to do from a technology perspective 
given uh, this wave of generative AI is so focused around training large language models, like we did a market sizing exercise uh, recently around Gen AI, and training uh, to us is the largest slice. The training of foundational models like GPT or you know uh, the Google Palm or Gemini, and I, I'm curious, like what is it that you had to do? in terms of your infrastructure to allow companies to train uh, their large language models on your infrastructure? Yeah, so the the crazy thing is, is that the path at CoreWeave and the path to our success has, has never been a straight line. And as we were making that transition from crypto to cloud workloads, you know, the first thing that we did was we said, okay, we want to consume, we want to build our own batch processing or batch workload environment to support what what at the time were vfx rendering workloads and we brought a direct-to-consumer platform to market and once we did that and we found we started finding early success the next thing was we got approached by other people that said hey you're doing batch workloads can you do that for me too and we moved from rendering to life sciences and you know where the where the light bulb really went off for us was when we were told by one our second client that they had a friend that was uh, doing GPT-2 inference um, on OpenAI, and they were uh, they wanted to move off of OpenAI to run it themselves. And this shift to running real-time inference workloads was the first step in our you know in our journey to serving AI as we do today, right? And we built what was effectively a managed inference service back in 2019 to support this. Um, and we found a lot of success early on with open source GPT-2. Um, you know, as OpenAI released, released GPT-3, uh, we had a lot of clients that left to go back to their closed source model just because it was so much better. And at this point, you know, I asked several of our clients like, hey, is there anybody out there who is working on training an open source equivalent of this? Like, I would be willing to, you know, invest millions of dollars in the infrastructure to, to have this available for our customers to use to help us grow the business. And we got connected with uh, a group called Eleuther AI. And Eleuther AI was training uh, open source equivalents. Uh, one of them is GPT-J 6 billion. One of them is the GPT-NEO-X model, which is a 20 billion parameter model. Um, and at the time, we had done absolutely no training infrastructure. You know, We didn't have the expertise in it. And we saw this as a great opportunity to do a couple things, right? And it wound up being way better than we expected. But you know, first thing was, hey, we can uh, we can build this infrastructure together with a Luther, and we can cut our teeth on providing it with what was a pretty low risk client, right? You know, they're not paying for it. We're investing this uh, in them and the community, um, and it allowed us to learn how to stand up and scale and operate uh, distributed training infrastructure. Uh, very quickly, very efficiently. Now, to be perfectly honest with you, what I didn't expect was the you know springboard effect that that project was going to have on the AI ecosystem. Right? Is you know you had hundreds of people that were interacting with the Luther AI and training these models, and all of a sudden, when the models were done, those hundreds of people now had production experience in building a large language model from scratch, and they've all left to, to found their own startups. Right. And a lot of those startups have become very large customers of CoreWeave. So, you know, yeah. that was the first step for us. 
And after a Luther, you know, we kept getting asked by other clients saying, Hey, you did this for a Luther. Can you do it for me? And what started out as uh, small installations um, quickly became much larger and, you know, now are into the, the 20 to 32,000 GPU type environments. Right. So uh, really, you started off from inference and gradually built a training uh, setup. Uh, and I'm guessing the GPU capacity you have is uh, somewhat agnostic to whether you, you, you run uh, inference workloads on it or training workloads on it. Yeah, so it depends, right? So if we're looking at our H100 infrastructure, um, that's always going to be fitted out with InfiniBand GPU direct networking fabrics to allow the GPUs to communicate with each other directly. Um, you know, that's a very specialized networking setup that is really for the most performant and demanding AI and machine learning workloads. You know, if you're looking to serve inference, your models may or may not require that type of networking. And, you know, we have a broad portfolio of solutions for folks that do require it, that don't require it. But, you know, when we're doing large tens of thousands type GPU clusters for folks like Inflection AI, you know, we're working directly with them to very specifically architect and build clusters that meet their use case requirements. Right. So, you know, a right. lot of this stuff is not just off the shelf. Mm -hmm. Right. But it really does depend upon the customer and their workloads. So, uh, I mean, you mentioned H100 and, you know, obviously uh, those are uh, in short supply. <laughs> Everyone wants to get their hands on it. So maybe, you know, to put it in context, uh, how would you compare the capacity that you have in your infrastructure versus, let's say, a hyperscale Cloudflare? I mean, what kind of scale differences are we talking about here? Yeah, so, you know, obviously, I don't necessarily know what other hyperscale clouds um, have from a quantity perspective of these things. Um, you know, I, I can confidently say that I would consider our, I, I would consider CoreWeave a hyperscale GPU cloud, um, you know, but I don't know that we have more or less than, uh, than those other, uh, those other players, right? You know, when, when we, when I, when I think about the size of the clusters that are out there and what we have deployed, um, I believe that we have some of the largest H100 clusters deployed on the planet. Got it. And and so, uh, uh, where are these uh, H100 uh, clusters? I mean, uh, are they in your own data centers? Are you using any co-location guys? Would love to, you know, uh, compare and contrast. How are you different from a co-location player, for example? Yeah, so um, I, I wouldn't really compare us necessarily to a co-location player, right? So we, let's let's talk about uh, two different pieces of this, right? One is the co-location provider, and then the second is the hyperscale cloud providers. Um, you know, hyperscalers and CoreWeave um, are both operating in similar ways in our data center environments, right? And that's everything from, you know, who owns them, how they're leased, how they're built, et cetera. You know, we have... Uh, we have just over, I think it's 15 data center campuses now. Um, and on those 15 campuses, you know, there may be multiple buildings, uh, but we're, we're active in 15 different campuses. Um, some of those campuses, we are the single tenant, meaning that we directly lease the building from the owner and, you know, we, we work with the operator inside of it. Some of those are more traditional co-location providers. 
right? And, you know, one of those um, that we have a wonderful relationship is Switch. And, you know, we have a large presence inside of Switch's data centers. Um, you know, and some of the other ones, like we, we announced a, one of our data center campuses down in, in, in Plano, Texas, where we are the single tenant. So, you know, the, if you think about co-location providers like Digital Realty Trust or Equinix um, or Switch, you know, it, it's likely that we are clients um, of those folks, uh, as well as clients of, or as well as a client of many others. Um, you know, what, where the parallel is drawn here is that the hyperscale clouds are also clients of those co-location providers in the same type of both single tenancy and multi-tenancy model, right? Um, now, how do I think about us compared to somebody like Equinix or DRT uh, is that, you know, in addition to the physical space and power and mechanical systems to run this infrastructure, you know, we're also providing the logical orchestration and uh, storage and data platform services and engineering support around this infrastructure to make our clients successful. Right? And, you know, we deeply, deeply partner with them and, you know, the ML teams that they have to make sure that they're running these tens of thousands of GPUs in their clustered environments as performantly and efficiently as possible, right? So, you know, when you're a customer or a, par or a partner of CoreWeave, you're not just getting access to like, something that would be equivalent to like an EC2 instance in AWS and, and figuring it out yourself. You know, we're deeply involved in architecting, bringing up and managing these solutions with our customers. So uh, what I'm uh, hearing here is you're also providing a consulting type of service where you're uh, onboarding the client, you're helping them run these clusters efficiently. So there is that uh, consulting and services element as well. Yeah, you know, I, I, I've never thought of it really as consulting, really. It's, it's always just, um, I, I would lump it into category of customer success. Mm -hmm. right? Is, you know, providing the ongoing engineering support, um, you know, understanding that these are large bespoke installations and working with our customers, you know, so that, you know, we're offboarding or we're offloading a lot of the infrastructure management that they would have to do, um, whether it's at another cloud or on premise. Um, and, you know, we're taking out a lot of that burden for them. Got it. So maybe, uh, you know, let's take an example. And I don't know if there are any numbers you can share around the total number of customers who are using your environment for training. But if not, maybe for the purpose of, you know, just uh, understanding how customers use your infrastructure, help us, you know, paint a picture around the training process. So uh, our understanding is that uh, training a large language model, depending on the size of the model, could be millions of dollars. And, you know, it really requires uh, multiple hundred uh, uh, kind of GPU capacity. And and the process doesn't end after you train it once. You, you have to constantly retrain it. Would love to hear, you know, some uh, kind of details around how customers use your infrastructure, especially in the context of retraining their model. Yeah, so typically um, our largest customers that are running, you know, multiple thousands of H100s in, in a clustered environment, um, they're entering into long-term contracts for that, right? It's, it's an infrastructure that's really built for them. Um, and they're doing that to do a couple things, right? The first is to, to run large uh, pre-training and training jobs. 
right? Where, you know, they're taking that data set and they're training a model from scratch. And that may be a process that takes weeks to months across the entirety of their GPU footprint. And once that model is then done, you know, then they go into a fine tuning or a retraining uh, set of exercises where it's likely going to be smaller, smaller jobs from a number of GPUs perspective. They run for a lot less time, but they run a lot more, uh, a lot more of them. Right. And, you know, as that model is uh, still inside of its useful life, like they're going to continue running those jobs on those models, you know, to make sure that it's up to date or it's still performing as well as they hope um, or to, you know, to introduce new data or, um, you know, to add new features. So, you know, it, it's pretty continuous, right? Even after the model is done being trained for the first time. Uh, but they're also using the infrastructure to serve those models. Right. Right. So, you know, even though they're not running active training or fine tuning or retraining workloads, you know, they may be they may be consuming that same infrastructure to serve their production traffic to customers. Now, I, I just wanted to clarify that point. So uh, I, I guess if uh, a model is trained on your infrastructure, it would be most optimal to do the inference also on that same infrastructure or that part can be run uh, anywhere. If they wanted to move the trained model for inference on a hyperscale cloud, they could potentially do that, but they prefer to do it on the same infrastructure. Yeah, so you know, it really depends upon how they think about their resource and capacity management internally, right? And if there's, we have some labs that only use us for training, and we have some other labs that use us for both training and inference. And you know, the ones that only use us for training are serving those models elsewhere. Um, the ones that are using us for training and inference is typically when their cluster may not be as active all the time from a training perspective, and they want to still get the most, uh, you know, compute per dollar out of the instances they already have, right? So with those types of customers, you know, we've worked with them on building uh, inference stacks that will identify when GPUs are idle and will immediately start serving traffic on those to reduce their inference costs uh, from a variable OpEx perspective, right? So, you know, every, a lot of the stuff that we do at CoreWeave is work with our customers and partners to understand their compute requirements and to optimize the heck out of them. And uh, I, I'm guessing uh, when it comes to uh, the type of customers you're working with, is there a particular domain where they're coming from? Uh, are these uh, small businesses, large businesses? Curious to uh, see like what 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 is the type of customers you're attracting the most? Yeah, so CoreWeave is is interesting in that, you know, we're really built to provide these very specialized scale GPU compute solutions, right? You know, one of our early taglines was we're not here to host your WordPress blog. Um, you know, so the customers that we have are typically going to be the ones that require, you know, let's say at least thousands of GPUs to run their training or inference workloads. And, and you know, that's really where our bread and butter is from an expertise perspective. Um, you know, we're always willing to invest in what we think are up and coming AI startups that, you know, are smaller customers from a footprint perspective. Um, but we're really optimized for the biggest customers of infrastructure. Um, right. And, you know, that's really who we're going after. Got it. And uh, I guess in terms of the infrastructure, given you said, you know, uh, there are 15 buildings where you currently have the setup. 
how have the requirements uh, related to the supporting infrastructure uh, change? Uh, and what I mean by that is, uh, for example, when it comes to electricity requirements or cooling requirements for these uh, locations, like has that changed from the time you were using uh, the same infrastructure for, uh, let's say, crypto workloads? Yeah, so the infrastructure that we ran cryptocurrency mining in, um, you know, that no longer exists in our portfolio, right? Those were basically warehouses with a lot of power. And sometimes we would literally put holes in the wall to cool it. Um, you know, that was, uh, you know, I, I could never call that a data center. Mm -hmm. You know, the environments that we're operating in right now um, are typically designed for five nines of uptime at a minimum. Uh, you know, there's significant redundancy and reliability uh, mechanical systems in place. You know, it's everything you would expect from like a tier three plus enterprise grade data center. And, you know, when I think about mechanical plant or power or cooling requirements that are different, you know, it's not necessarily uh, different infrastructure that's on site. It's, you know, it's a different understanding of how you operate that infrastructure. Right. And these requirements and, and methods of operation have actually changed dramatically just from the inference workloads to the training workloads. Right. With inference, you know, your the, the compute load that you're consuming is going to really is going to vary based upon time of day in the, the area you serve. Right. You know, it's going to follow the traffic generated by the population, but it's going to be pretty constant and, and change very gradually with training workloads especially when it's a single tenant environment, right? If they have a job that's running on all 10,000 of their GPUs, they may go from, let's call it 5% of their power consumption to 100% of their power consumption in as little as five seconds, hmm. right? So, you know, AI workloads and these distributed training workloads are uh, putting a lot of different stresses onto the data center infrastructure that, you know, many of the co-location operators and engineering teams just haven't seen before. So, you know, we're working through that in all of our builds is like, hey, listen, you have to understand that these load, the, the load variance and volatility here is going to be very high. Right. Right. And we're working through how do I configure my cooling systems to deal with that? How do we think through, you know, drawing that much power so quickly off of the grid, um, how that's going to impact things in the area? So it's not just turn the power on and expect it to be there. Like, there's a lot more planning that's gone into place. Here. Right. And, and so I'm, I'm guessing, you know, it, it is a CapEx model where every year you obviously have to spend uh, a certain budget on uh, upgrading your infrastructure, whether it's getting the latest chips from NVIDIA or uh, just, I, I guess, the buildings where you have uh, your infrastructure. Uh, talk to us about uh, what kind of capex you see in uh, in, in terms of uh, running this kind of a business model, and uh, uh, maybe tie that to the utilization levels you would need to run this, you know, in in a profitable way. Yeah, so the, a lot of the capex plans that we have um, are associated with what we can what we call reserved instance contracts. Right. And these are for customers that are building custom installations that are, let's call three to five year terms where they've committed to use this infrastructure 24 hours a day, 365 days a year. Right. So right out of the gate, we understand very, very well what the economic modeling of this 
uh, of this asset and the eventual value of this asset is going to be. So, you know, when I when we look at the the amount of capex that we're going to do in 2024, which is I would say, I'm going to cuff it as many billions of mm -hmm. dollars. Um, you know, as we're making those investments, we already understand what that economic model for those investments is going to be for the next five years. Right. So, you know, there there's very very little speculative investment that's happening on our side. Um, you know, we're building because there is real demand from large, uh, you know, let's call it multinational enterprise level, super credit worthy customers. Right. And, you know, it's been important to us with our risk management background that, you know, we're building a portfolio of customers that one are representative of the best AI labs and best AI startups on the planet, but also uh, incredibly bulletproof from a credit credit and balance sheet perspective. Got it. Okay. And uh, I, I guess lastly, I mean, uh, look, uh, in a typical uh, use case for a co-location facility, they would want to have, you know, different types of uh, compute. Uh, and uh, that's what hyperscalers will end up doing as well, that they offer NVIDIA GPUs as well as, you know, some other type of GPUs that customers may want to use. Do you think uh, uh, you will end up going that route where you would want to offer that variety of compute in your infrastructure or you uh, would be focused on NVIDIA at this point? Yeah, so w we do offer uh, products that are, I would consider to be more generic in nature, right? It's, it's typically to support our customers' installations, right? As you know, even if you have all the GPU servers in the world, you still have to do pre-processing on your data sets and you need CPU servers to do that cost-effectively. So we do offer those uh, those compute services, but you know everything that we do from an architectural and focus perspective is really around optimizing the the capex intensive, really high end GPU stuff. Um, now, where do I see the business going down the road? Um, you know, in five years, as the number of use cases expand for accelerated computing and as GPUs, you know, help accelerate other workloads outside of AI, ML, and VFX. Uh, do I think that CoreWeave is going to be providing a lot more managed services and, you know, services typical of what you would expect from other clouds? I do. Um, but, you know, we're going to be dragged in that direction by our clients. Like, we're not going to speculatively go do it. Got it. And uh, maybe, uh, you know, a point on, on just uh, how big is the mismatch between supply and demand? If, if you had, I mean, I know no one has a crystal ball here, but given we keep reading about the long lead times and you know the supply constraints in terms of gpu availability what if you had to guess from your perspective how much of a mismatch there is and how do you see that resolving over time great question um and it's a question that we get asked in in pretty much every investor meeting that we have um you know if you look at it simply from a distributed training perspective you would expect that there needs to be some defined amount of infrastructure to build and train these models. And you would expect that th this, uh, this mismatch in supply demand may only last for a year or two years. Um, that's only one side of the equation, right? And the piece that's become incredibly hard for me to have a, an intelligent answer to is, you know, what is the ultimate level of demand look like here? Um, not just with training, but also with training and inference. And, if you require 10,000 GPUs to train your model, but you require 500,000 GPUs to serve your model, it's a very, very different set of demand, right? And 
I don't believe that we've even begun to see what commercial success from an AI product perspective will look like uh, on the GPU demand side. And, you know, it's, it's something that really excites me, but it also really scares me. And it scares me because you don't want to be in a position where access to infrastructure is a defining, uh, is, is a defining moment for an AI startup, right? You never want to see a company fail because they can't get the compute resources they need to actually serve their products. Um, so, you know, I know that there's a lot of folks out there that talk about AI being a bubble and how this is unsustainable, but if the adoption curve of AI technologies um, continues as it is, and we start seeing real products that become pervasive in society and in people's daily lives, like I don't believe we're an order of magnitude off from a, a supply demand perspective. I think that we're likely two orders of magnitude off. Yeah. Right. And that's really where I see the opportunity for, for the cloud and for the GPU clouds over the next five to 10 years is what that eventual demand looks like when we do find successful AI applications. Right. Okay. I, I have uh, f uh, five minutes remaining. Uh, we want to wrap it up quickly. So uh, maybe a quick lightning round, you know, just, uh, and you can keep your answers brief there. Um, uh, like, uh, given, you know, you're so unique, I, I would tailor my questions. Typically, I, I would ask a different set of questions, but maybe, you know, just for the purpose of what you're doing, uh, I, I, I want to focus or I, I guess get uh, some quick comments uh, from you on uh, just how you're thinking about this market. So maybe I'll uh, start off with a training versus inference question. Which one do you think will be a bigger market over the next 10 years? Inference by orders of magnitude. Wow. Okay. And what what is the most important metric of your business success? Speed to deployment. Right. Getting our customers the, the infrastructure they need as soon as possible. Any misconceptions about CoreWeave that you want to clear on this podcast? No comment. Okay. Um, like, what is one technology or uh, trend that you are most excited about uh, for the next two years? I remain incredibly excited about uh, text to image generation. You know, I think it's going to unlock a lot of creativity and the pairing of that with, um, you know, with text completions and uh, the LLMs is, is really exciting to me. What could go wrong with the assumptions that you're making? That's a good one. Um, you know, it, it may be that the time to adoption on AI product uh, success is significantly longer than I imagine. And, you know, we go into a prolonged market demand downturn. Great. And finally, anything else you want to uh, convey on this podcast for the listeners who really uh, want to learn more about your company? Yeah. So the first thing I'll say is that, um, you know, if you're interested, we're always hiring and we're always hiring aggressively, um, you know, to learn more about us, uh, you know, that there are several folks that have done interviews and other podcasts. One of them is Brandon McBee, who's our chief strategy officer. And if you can find something from Peter Solanke, I highly recommend it. Um, like I said before, he's an incredible technologist um, and I really, really admire everything that he does here. So um, if you want to learn more, find something by Peter. Great. Thank you so much, Brian. This has been an absolute pleasure. I, I admire you being on this podcast and uh, really appreciate your time today. 